Design Matters is on summer break, but we thought it was a good time to repost some of our favorite episodes. This one was originally posted in December of 2015. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with type designer Tobias Frere-Jones about his career and about why typefaces are like the air we breathe. The stretch of time between when you wake up and when you first interact with some piece of type that someone has drawn is probably only a couple of seconds. Here's Debbie Millman. If you read the New York Times Magazine or the Boston Globe, you've probably seen his work. Same if you read Martha Stewart Living, Esquire, or GQ. Basically, if you read magazines or books or catalogs, you've probably come across a typeface designed by Tobias Frere Jones. He has designed over 800 of them for clients like the Cooper Hewitt, National Design Museum, and Nike. He joins me today at the School of Visual Arts in New York City to talk about his life and to share a big announcement. Tobias Frere-Jones, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Tobias, I understand you are the great-grandson of the writer Edgar Wallace, who wrote the screenplay for the film King Kong. That's right. Why isn't this part of your official bio? I can't believe you don't tell everyone you meet about your family lineage. (laughs) Um... King Kong. Yeah, 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 no, it, no, it is it is kind of an odd thing to have in the family history. You know, I, I need to you know take a moment and explain that he didn't write the story; he wrote the screenplay. But still, I think I probably don't mention it much because it's not so representative of all the work he did. Because he was a novelist in England through the twenties and thirties, and he wrote something like something like one hundred and fifty novels and about a dozen stage plays, and I don't know. 10 nonfiction books or something. He definitely set the bar for absolutely ridiculous overachievement in the, <laughs> in the, in the family. Um, but he was also the beginning of this line of writers and publishers that have run through the family. Your brother is Sasha Frere Jones, the musician, writer, and former staff writer for The New Yorker. Is everybody in your family creative? Um, I love how you're seriously considering this question. <laughs> well, in, in, I think in, in, in some way or another, it's, it's never far away from what we've done. It was certainly it was a part of our lives growing up. The written word was never far away. The house was full of books. I thought that everyone's house had, you know, bookshelf after bookshelf after bookshelf piled up in the hallways and everywhere else. And we had a, one of those really big uh, Webster's dictionaries, one of those old you know, ornamental wooden stands, sort of like the centerpiece sort of of the living room. Lovely. And then there's always opera on somewhere in the house. This was kind of the canvas that my childhood and Sasha's childhood played out on. I understand when you were growing up, you were fascinated by the Gil Sands lettering on jars of jam that your mom brought back from the UK. Apparently you were perplexed by what it was that made them look so British. Did you ever figure it out? Is there something that you can say very specifically about something looking British? It started with not understanding how I could open the kitchen cabinet and immediately know what my mom had brought home from London and what came from the supermarket down the street. And I I thought it was something about the shape of the packaging or the 
color that was used and eventually figured out something had to do with the lettering. I mean, I tried experiments with turning all the jars around so I couldn't see the fronts of the labels. It was just the... Bottle shape. And the list of ingredients on the back, uh -huh. just those little blocks of text. And still, just from that cue, I could tell what was British and what was American. And I eventually figured out that I was spotting Gil Sands, <laughs> which was not showing up on anything American, and it was all over the British stuff. And that's the thing that I was identifying. Oh, okay. Can you talk about the day you were at St. Anne's High School? It's where you went to high school in Brooklyn, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you got a message that Ed Bengat had called you. You thought you were being punked, right? Oh, I, I did. I, I tried to get into a, a lettering course that he was offering, I uh, was going to be offering that summer. Where was he offering it? You know, actually, I believe it was, it was here at the School of Visual Arts, kind oh, of think of it. good. I would have to go check that. But it, it, it wasn't clear if he was going to let a 17-year-old kid into his lettering class. I knew this was a long shot. But then I got a message at school saying that Ed Benga had called for me, and I thought this was one of my friends playing a joke on me. And then I realized that my friends had no idea who Ed Bengat was. And who is Ed Bengat for our, the people that are listening that might not know? Uh, Ed Bengat was one of the most prolific typeface designers. I believe he started in the, the 50s, but certainly through the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, produced a tremendous number of typefaces. And the, the look of advertising through the 70s and 80s has his hand all over that, that typography. There's certainly other hands as well, like Despina, Tony Stan, and... Tom Carnese, but certainly Ed Bangat was one of the most influential of those. So he called you? Uh, he did. Was he friendly when you spoke to him on the phone? Uh, he was. I mean, he was, I think, a little perplexed as to how he was considering letting some, some teenager into his class. But I went and took this class for a, uh, actually only for a couple of weeks because I'd already had a trip planned, so I didn't actually finish that course. But I did actually pick up some, some tips about lettering and proportion and drawing from him that I was able to at least try to use later on. What would you say was the biggest or most important thing you learned from him? The thing that always sticks, sticks in my head may not actually be the most useful thing, but when he was describing geometric sans serifs and he put up Futura on the board in the front of the room and compared the lowercase t to Jesus on the cross, except one of his arms is a little shorter than the other, and explained that he's a Jew, he can say that. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Like I said, it's probably not the most useful thing to have gotten out of that class. But I think the confidence that he had in manipulating these very intricate, delicate shapes was, I think, just really inspiring just by itself. Because I was really intimidated by the kind of lettering that he could do just freehand and had no idea how I could ever do that. But watching him sketch this out without any kind of hesitation, that was just inspiring. You could see that you could actually do this. After you know, years of practice and refinement, you can be able to do this. You were 17 years old when you took the class with Ed. Were you already sure at that time that you wanted to be a type designer? Yeah, it was, it was about that time that I had settled on type design as the discipline that I would aim for. I'd been struggling with wanting to be a writer like so many in my family. I was trained really well as a writer from my father, who was a copywriter in Madison Avenue agencies uh, and also at St. Anne's. But I also wanted to be a painter, and I couldn't bear the thought of not drawing stuff. I think it was, it was actually through one of my father's clients, uh, it was AT&T, who went out to 
their main headquarters in Basking Ridge, New Jersey, to pitch one of the campaigns he was doing for them. And he came back really impressed by what he saw there, particularly about how they had built the telephones and printed the phone books. He said they'd taken this problem so seriously that they went and got someone to draw a special alphabet just to use for the phone books. And it took me quite a while to just understand what he had just said and realized later that he was describing Bell Centennial by Matthew Carter, which had a few years before been commissioned by AT&T to use for their phone books. But the idea that someone would commission a special drawing of the alphabet seemed at first kind of bizarre. I just didn't even understand what that meant. That's like designing water or something. <laughs> I realized that that could be sort of this middle ground that I thought I would never find between being a writer and working with the language and also getting to draw stuff. It must have been incredible for you then to ultimately be commissioned to do the stock prices for the Wall Street Journal. It's probably the closest thing I could compare to the Yellow Pages. Yeah, it was pretty fantastic. Um, <laughs> Talk about symmetry in one's life. Yeah, that was retina. And I appreciated it not only for the kind of parallel to this design from someone who had come to be a colleague and a mentor of mine, but was also able to build on experiments that I had done before during my years at RISD in form recognition and how the reading process works. But it brought all of those to bear on this very particular problem of making type survive being printed at a very, very small size at a, on not very accommodating paper. You received a BFA in graphic design from RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design, in 1992. Is your degree then not in typography? It's in the overall discipline of graphic design? Yeah, it's, it's a more general graphic design degree. That's what they offered at that time. My plan was to go into RISD and learn how to draw typefaces and come out the other end and be a typeface designer. I then found out that, at the time at least, that sort of thing was not taught in schools. So I just had to figure out what kind of knowledge I could scare up on my own and what kind of lessons I could teach myself. What and, did you come up with? Uh, well, in a number of cases, I would take the projects I would get from my various uh, courses and hide within them a second project that was really just for me. So I would work out a solution to I don't know, identity design, or I think there was we did a semester in game design, and I would work out a solution that would include drawing a typeface. And I wouldn't really bring that up while I was presenting this project that I did all this stuff, and I actually drew this typeface. That, well, wait, never mind, don't, don't worry about that part. <laughs> and I did an independent study with Christoph Lenk, more specifically focused on designing a typeface. I wanted to you know, go back to the beginning, the beginning of Roman humanist typography and draw a Venetian old style. I wasn't quite sure what that meant, but I wanted to go there and just you know, see what I could find. I spent a semester wrestling around with broad pen drawings and tracing paper and not very easy to use software. And after a semester, I had a, a lowercase that was actually not very good, but, <laughs> but I couldn't really figure out why. At the end of the semester, Christoph said, you know, to get a real full analysis of what you've done here, uh, you ought to go see a professional. He knew Matthew Carter up in Cambridge and arranged for me to go up to Cambridge. Matthew was still at Bitstream at the time. So I went to Bitstream carrying my little proofs of this thing that I was 
barely knew what I was doing. And and you knew who you were meeting. Oh, yeah. So, no, this was like going to see the Pope or something. Right. But And you didn't feel scared about showing him what you thought might be substandard work? I was you... petrified. <laughs> but you did it anyway. That's but, amazing. But I mean, like, when, when else would I get this chance? That's so, incredible. So, fine, I'll do this anyway. And he was fantastic. You know, in, in retrospect, remembering what he said and looking at what I was showing him, I can see that he was being really quite diplomatic. <laughs> he didn't tell you it sucked? Um, no, no, no. He encouraged me to keep at it, to think about this aspect, figure out this relationship to this other thing, and did not scold me for bringing him work that was really not up to snuff. Well, maybe it was. Well, it, it did actually need some work, and it took me some years to figure out what steps in that process I didn't quite understand, so I could revisit it. And that became Hightower. That was uh, finished off for the AIJ Journal in, was it 94, I think. So what it, it wasn't wasted time by any means. Uh, no, no. It went to sleep for a while and then came back when I was in a better position to draw this thing that I originally had in mind. And you've been friends with Matthew Carter ever since. Would you say he's one of your biggest influences? Certainly. I had the tremendous luck to work with him on specific projects while I was at Font Bureau and just be around him, just be able to talk to him about the projects he had done in the past. Also, Mike Parker, who's a a figure who's less known sort of outside the type community, but he was a, he would have described himself as a kind of editor. He didn't do much type design on his own, but he served as a kind of second pair of eyes to countless designers while he was uh, working at, at Linotype for decades and then through Bitstream and then also at Font Bureau. He was this walking encyclopedia of these amazing stories of not only type history, and the people who made this work, but also the way that it was made. Just hanging around with him was just an amazing experience. And I feel like every day I refer to something that Mike told me at some point. Immediately after you graduated, you joined Font Bureau. How did you originally get the job there? After I met with Matthew, I, I wrote to him asking if there was any space at Bitstream for an entry-level designer to come in. And he said their budget was was tied up with other things. But perhaps you ought to go talk to this colleague of mine who's just started up a shop on the other side of town, this fellow named David Burlow. Off you go. And I, I met with him. And I think it was actually in that first meeting that I was showing him the process for Hightower, the process for Dolores, which had also been published by that point. And then this idea that I had for taking tickets from parking garages and trying to reverse engineer an alphabet out of these 10 wobbly-looking numbers. And he thought that that actually sounded like a good idea. Why don't you go do that? So he hired you to do a project that you had your heart set on doing for yourself. Yeah, well, I, and I, was, I also didn't know if what would come of it, but he was willing to make the bet that something interesting would come out of this. Over the seven years you worked at Font Bureau, you created a number of the typefaces that are their best known, among them Interstate and Pointer Old Style and Gothic. Let's talk about Interstate. The font was released in 1994, just uh -huh. two years after you arrived at Font Bureau. And from what I've read, Interstate was loosely based on the font family Highway Gothic used by the United States Federal Highway Administration for road signs. Is this true? Yep. And so what inspired you to do that? I grew up in a number of different places in, in Brooklyn, but 
for a long time, I lived at the very top of Brooklyn Heights, just by the Brooklyn Bridge there. Up the hill at the beginning of the Brooklyn Heights promenade, it looks out over the, over the water, over to Manhattan. If you stand at the very northern end of the promenade and look down at the BQE that will appear below you for a moment, you'll see a highway sign right there for, I believe it's exit 28. It's this unusual circumstance where you get to see a highway sign at eye level and at pretty short range. So I spent a lot of time standing there at the railing looking at these letters, thinking that these shapes that are so distinctive and so recognizable don't exist outside of this one particular environment. And they work pretty well at this environment. They're durable and legible at high speeds. And those qualities ought to be useful for running text. So it was with this kind of premise that the strength of these forms can be sort of remapped to a new situation that I had this idea that I would make a text face based on highway signs. And I, I just kind of liked the fact that it was from this completely sort of off-the-wall source. So with the help of my friend also from Rizzi, Scott Stoll, I tracked down the Federal Highway Administration's specification for what highway signs ought to look like and what the letters on highway signs ought to look like. It's a pretty bizarre-looking spec, and how closely it's followed varies a lot from state to state, I found out later. But the idea behind Interstate was basically to take these forms and try to keep their personality, their sort of what I came to think of as their clunk, and remove the parts that don't help, like the weight that clumps up in places and the widths that look kind of weird and the curves that break in weird places. Basically to make all of that look deliberate and balanced. That turned out to be a much more difficult job than I realized. How do you do something like that? How do you make something look deliberately balanced? A lot of trial and error and most of all observation. You have to then be able to trust your own observational abilities. Yeah. And and, and that doesn't appear on day one. That that comes through finding out what happens if you, you know, change the width of the lowercase n and the lowercase h and the u and the m, you know, its relatives, and then seeing what kind of effect that has when you set a whole block of text in it and then trying something with the lowercase b, d, p, q, and g, that'll have some kind of effect. I came to notice really quickly that to be able to understand sort of the cause and effect, I would have to do one kind of change at a time and then see what that effect was and try to understand that if I do this, it will have this effect. If I change this other thing, make this curve longer, make this curve sharper or whatever, it'll have some other effect. It was really the first time that I took this very sort of foggy notion of a personality and tried to break that down into the parts that would project that. It was this kind of curve, this kind of intersection. Interstate has now been used all throughout culture, including the 2000 U.S. Census, You've called the font working class lettering. What do you mean by that? It called it uh, working class or blue collar typography to acknowledge its source as being different than, I don't know, Bembo or Garamond or, or any of these other sort of fine printing typefaces, which are great. And they're beautiful and they're lovely and they're really important. But I think there's also a value in this other source that has a much different kind of attitude, but also comes from 
outside typography. Type design has a tendency to point back to itself. In what way? What do you mean? So much of type history was an incremental process uh, from one designer slowly shifting a style from the designer that had come before, you know, whether it was Fleischmann and Kaslan and Baskerville and, and, and the rest. That certainly changed after William Morris. So, you know, we don't think it's so unusual to find Futura and Garamond on the same page, even though those were designed hundreds of years apart. We couldn't really do that in fashion or in many other fields. I mean, you might be able to pull that off in architecture in some way, but... Maybe with some furniture, but it would have to be inventive. <laughs> yes, yes. But there's a kind of fluidity now to history that I'm pretty sure does not exist in most other fields. I hope that the overpass on the exit 28 ramp in Brooklyn becomes part of some walking typography tour after <laughs> knowing about this. It should be. Tobias, you've said that public lettering or what we see on street signs and storefronts and so on is a cultural indicator in the same way that a regional style of architecture or an accent is, and that typography has the same kind of potency to it. Can you give us some examples of, of this, where we might see something like this? As a kind of tangent off of the project where I was documenting lettering for designing Gotham, that turned into a project of its own, visiting all these different neighborhoods in Manhattan. I planned to visit every block of Manhattan and just record everything that seemed interesting. Or, you walked or, every last block in Manhattan with a camera. From the Battery to 14th Street. That took something like three years. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, I ended up drawing my own map of Manhattan to keep track of where I had been and where I hadn't because you know, the maps that were available just weren't working. One of the many, many things that I found was that there is actually a style of geometric sands that you only find in Chinatown. Wow. I've wondered a number of times exactly how this came to be, but it's, it's really distinctive, and you won't forget it once you see it. But it seems to be a kind of tangent off of a style that existed throughout the country through the 60s, but takes it in this different kind of direction. It has a different kind of idea about how proportions work and how the white space within shapes is managed. I don't know if this is a kind of fusion of a Western style on a Asian framework, or this is all just the work, the personal style of just one sign painter. I, I really don't know. But yeah, if you go to Chinatown and you can still see some old hand-painted signs there, you'll probably see this Chinatown Gothic. Tobias, I think there's a book in this, Deconstructing Gotham. All <laughs> the references that you found in your three-year trek to create one of the world's great typefaces now. In a wonderful interview in Surface Magazine, you stated that typography connects in some way or another to just about everything we do in our lives. It's like a thread that runs through civilization. And I thought that that was one of the most beautiful ways I've ever heard the notion of what typography is expressed. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean when you say that it's like a thread that runs through civilization? It's always there. I mean, it's difficult to look at any kind of historical record without type being involved in some way. I suppose you could 
look at paintings without any kind of supporting material, contemporary material that goes with it. But to get a really complete picture of any kind of aspect of history, whether it's politics or culture or technology or or anything else, type is going to be there in some way. I realized at one point that the stretch of time between when you wake up and when you first interact with some piece of type that someone has drawn is probably only a couple of seconds. Correct. Whether it's the text on the alarm clock or some other bit of text somewhere in your bedroom, you're looking at type pretty much from the moment you open your eyes in the morning until you go to bed at night. It might as well be the air and the water. So it can't help but be a witness to everything that happens in every sphere of our civilization. I know that typography impacts the way we read, the ability to decipher and understand. How much does typography impact communication? Whether we realize it or not, it it sets a kind of expectation, not only for the person or entity is doing the communicating, but also the audience. You know, if you meet someone on, on the street in a really well-fitted three-piece suit, you've already made some guesses about who this person is. If this person is you know, I don't know, wearing shorts and flip-flops, then you're going to make some other kind of guess. And so again, this is before you've said anything. And type has the same kind of power to project a personality or an, an agenda over or under or around the text itself. So typography in many ways is like positioning communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've stated that part of typeface design is managing the eternal friction between logic and optics. That's a gorgeous sentence, by the way. Thanks. It's always there, <laughs> no matter the style. So what do you mean by that? How is this manifested? The ultimate problem is that our eyes and brains are not 100% logical and predictable. Really? Yeah. That's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem. That's yeah, the yeah. problem for everything. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. This is not really news to anybody. But um, it, it comes up really frequently in, in typeface design and in pretty much every shape that you draw. I'm trying to think of there's some shape somewhere that does not have to deal with this. I doubt there is. But the way that we understand one shape to be the same size as another or the way we understand the space between letters to be consistent or... But it the, isn't really. Or the thickness of you know, this shape and another shape. And to get all of these things to feel as though they're equal, we often need to make them unequal. So the O really is taller and deeper than the H. Otherwise, it'll look wrong. Isn't that incredible how something could look wrong but actually not be wrong and vice versa? We create these constructs in our head. And I love that you've said that our conscious minds want to draw one shape, but our eyes need to see another. How does that happen? Why does it work that way? There are a number of theories about how exactly this works. Our judgment is based on comparison and not on absolute measurements. So we can be influenced by the things that are immediately around the thing that we're looking at. So that makes all of this kind of a moving target. Very subjective, similar to color, the way color interplays with whatever color is next to it. Yes, right, exactly. So this, the formal the equivalent of that is all over just about any design that you could look at. A lot of my students believe that you know, if they, some geometric sans serif based on circles and squares, and that that's going to be 
the simplest and by extension easiest thing that they could do, I try to warn them that actually this is going to be one of the hardest things you could do because to make this look right, the circle cannot be a circle anymore. And for these strokes to look like they're parallel, they actually have to bend into each other. You know, it's, it's a difficult thing to understand. You know, it's like being told that there's a bunch of numbers in between three and four that no one told you about. But there is. Yeah. <laughs> Tobias, do handwritten types horrify you? Not necessarily. <laughs> uh, I, I think, I, I assume you're talking about the typefaces that are based in handwritten forms. and Handwritten and, forms and, and, and people and creating and, their own type with their own signatures and so forth. The types that are kind of automatically generated from someone writing out an alphabet on a sheet of paper and sending them into some service that will make a font out of it. Yet, no, that tends to not turn out so well. Right. But I haven't seen that overrun the landscape the way I think some of us feared for a moment that it might <laughs> once this came out that 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 we'd be seeing you know horribly assembled faux handwriting typefaces all over the place yeah that's some tiny part of the landscape and it does what it needs to do you left Font Bureau in 1999 and came back to New York where you began working with Jonathan Heffler there you designed fonts for clients including the Wall Street Journal the New York Times Martha Stewart Living the Whitney Museum and you worked with Jonathan for 14 years when unexpectedly you split up. The world reacted to this split rather dramatically. The press compared your breakup to that of the Beatles. I know that there is a limited amount of information you can say about this due to some confidentiality agreements and so forth. But if you can, talk a little bit about the amount of fanfare. Did it surprise you? It did. I mean, everybody I, wrote about it. Everybody. I, it was I, the New York Times and well, yeah, everybody. I, I was really not expecting that many people to be interested. But perhaps it says something about the significance that typography has taken on, You know, not just in the lives of designers, our customers, but the, sort of the wider public that's the ultimate audience for all of this. Well, I think that part of the reason, from my own perspective, that people compared you to the Beatles is because of the genius that you've brought to the discipline and the fact that this company, Heffler Frere Jones, was one that changed the typographic landscape probably in the same way that the Beatles changed music. So I can understand, as witness to this, why that would be so heartbreaking, the fact that two people that have so much talent were unable to make it work. You had a very dramatic split, resulted in a lawsuit that you both settled out of court, which is why we can't talk too much about that. I recently went through a breakup with someone I'd been with for not even three years, so I can't imagine the pain of ending a relationship with someone that you were with for 14 what was that like for you? Did you go through a depression? Uh, yeah, I think depression might be the word for it. I'm I'm not sure. It was heartbreak. Um, uh, it was it was a lot of. Uh, I know it's, it's still difficult to describe. I mean, in that moment, I tried to put some word or a bunch of words to what I was feeling and came up empty-handed. But 
think I, I can say that this was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. You know, there's all sorts of aspects of this that I just, I just can't get into, but I can say that I'm very happy to have this done and behind me. How did you recover from that kind of sadness, disappointment, heartbreak? How do you how do you get over that? Uh, by planning for the future. One of the ways I tried to pull myself together through this was to start drawing again. So I, I started a number of typefaces in that uh, in that period, so that you know I could look forward to seeing these done. Because the press was so interested in what was happening, were you upset that this was something so public? Were you Did you feel embarrassed? Did you feel that it was um, unnecessary? After a while, I, I, I just tried to not think about it so much because I wasn't sure what to make of it. You know, I, I tried to focus on you know, what I needed to do, how this is affecting my family, and what our plans would be. People were going to say whatever they're going to say, and I just, I couldn't afford to grant a lot of space for that. Good. That's good. Earlier this year, you started your own foundry, so I guess those drawings came in handy. They did. <laughs> Aptly named Frere Jones Type. Congratulations, Tobias. Thanks. It's really, really great to have you back in the marketplace. Talk about the goals of your new effort. What kinds of work do you want to be doing? The goal for the new business is to continue doing exactly what I've been doing up to this point. I suppose you could describe it as a startup, but it's perhaps a bit different in that people know exactly what to expect. You know, it's Paul McCartney in the wings. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, depending on how you feel about wings, but yeah. <laughs> oh, I love them. Okay. <laughs> or it could be the Yoko Ono band, you know? Okay. Good. Plastic yeah. Ono, that's it, Plastic Ono. Okay, sure. Which, whichever one of those you thought turned out really well. <laughs> yeah, I, I think people know what they'll get, the kind of care that I put into these designs. That's the plan. I think over all these years, I, I don't know, I've drawn like, I don't know, maybe half of what I have in mind. So... Yeah, I, I have a lot more work to do. Can't wait to see so what I you're doing. So I need a new home to put all this in. Well, you've started a blog on your new website, which is a terrific resource. It's both entertaining and educational. I love the piece you wrote about type names. And you write, years ago, I asked one of my mentors what he thought was the hardest part of designing a typeface. I was expecting the cap S or the italic lowercase or something like that. But he answered without hesitation, the name. Finding the name is the hardest part. Is that true? Really? It's that hard? I find it hard. <laughs> On your Wikipedia page, the list of typefaces you've designed start with the names Amanda and then Dolores. Those early girlfriends or sisters or where um, those, yeah, those names actually, come Actually, that, that should say Armada. I don't know if that got misspelled. But Dolores got its, its name. I think I got a break for the, the first typeface that I released because that began as an antidote to this very serious Venetian text face that I was doing, just hammering on this thing month after month, trying to figure out what I was doing. I needed to draw something that was just the opposite of that. So I started doodling stuff on the back of napkins at a bar that was down the street from the RISD studios and remembered a comment that my brother Sasha had made sometime earlier that while he was making the flyers for his band Dolores, 
he couldn't find a font that fit the personality of the band. And I looked at this thing that I scribbled out on a bar napkin and thought, maybe this could be a good fit. I don't know. I'll give it a go. So I brought these back to RISD and tried making a typeface out of them. It was originally a Christmas present from me to my brother. And, and he, he actually used it for a couple of shows that the band did in um, Providence. So that typeface just took its name from the name of the band. So, and vice versa. <laughs> yeah. So, so you have to ask him like where the, the name Dolores comes from. Okay. Let's talk about your big new effort. Very exciting to announce that you have a brand new typeface coming. It is called Mallory. Mm-hmm. So first question about Mallory. Is it a reference to family ties? Uh, it is. <gasps> it is. <laughs> oh, my God. Tell us everything. Oh, I, I, sorry. No, I th- no, you're talking about the, the TV show. I thought, I, I thought you meant family ties as, as in my own family. Oh, you're breaking my heart. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, okay. Tell me everything. The, the idea does start with my family. Okay. Um, it was one of these projects that I began in early 2014. And I began with this sort of what if. What would happen if I took my own family tree and mapped that onto type history? What would happen? What would happen if I tried to draw a typeface that has the same sort of background, the same sort of heritage that I do? Interesting. So I, you know, so it's I, like a selfie. Uh, kind of, yeah. So it's sort of a type s- selfie. Yeah, sort of self-portrait yeah. as typeface or something. Between growing up in New York with an American father and a British mother and spending lots of time back in England, I grew up in this hybrid environment. I wanted to see what I could do to mix these two traditions with each other because they talk to each other pretty frequently, but you're not going to mistake one voice for another. So that was the original idea was to try to take these two traditions and find some kind of successful cooperation between them. So what are the characteristics of the face? Well, the idea was to make something that has moments of being sort of austere and perhaps serious, as I think will do, very sort of proper and dignified. That's what I was thinking of. And on the other hand, very energetic and outgoing and gregarious. How you doing? (laughs) And I wanted to find out if there was some way to get these two personalities to live together. So there's sort of dichotomies? There's a kind of uh, sort of alternation, a sort of oscillation between a strictness and looseness in the shapes, which plays out primarily between the caps, which are more sort of serious and sort of monumental in their impression, and the lowercase, which is more organic and more human. Tobias, one of the things that I read about your search for great typography in making great typography was that you were very interested in the dichotomy between conceptual inquiries and traditional forms and that you found them very intriguing. And you stated that you, and this was quite a while ago, that your hope was that someday you'd be able to reconcile the two extremes. I'm wondering if is Mallory your attempt to Reconcile the two extremes? I think they're, they're all attempts in that direction. I find it especially satisfying to come at this kind of problem from some new angle. I mean, th- this one began with this you know, very personal, very emotional source. And I, I didn't even know if I would consider this 
to be a retail product because if you're just you know this sort of personal rumination and you know I'm not going to assume that that's going to be useful to someone else but you know I saw that it actually worked pretty nicely in text and it combined nicely with other typefaces that saw that it had more utility that's sort of separate from any kind of personal origin but I think it's more uh, sort of satisfying and also more informative to sort of step outside that continuum of history that often sort of looks back on itself uh, in, in a way that, that that is valuable. But to try to pull other sources and other ideas into typography, whether that's something cultural like in Interstate or some of the experimental work that I did back in the 90s where make typefaces that literally self-destruct while you're using them, I found it useful to work in both kinds of modes, you know, ones that work with a sort of historical set of tools and ones that consciously put those aside and maybe call them in later if they're useful or not. Yeah, so, so I think each one of these is a kind of, I kind of think of sort of a new recipe with the same ingredients of the, the sort of historical and conceptual approaches. What was the hardest letter to design? Uh, I think the the one that gave me the most grief was probably the lowercase a. Why? Because it has a personality that comes out very quickly. Uh, you don't have to coax a personality out of it like you would with maybe some other simpler letters. Whoa, so, excuse me for interrupting. What simpler letter do you have to coax the personality out of? The V, you know, there's, there's only so much you can do with two diagonals. But the A, because there's so many things going on in the interaction of all these parts is so intricate, it will show, it will project a voice very quickly. So Mallory went through, I think it was 16 or 17 different versions of, of that lowercase a before I found the one that actually sounded like what I had in mind. What is the most surprising or hidden thing we might not notice about the face that you can share with us that only listeners will be able to identify? I can tell you that I, I have a particular fondness for how the number three turned out. Why is that? It sums up the kind of mix of geometric curves moving into completely non-geometric shapes, you know, as the, the strokes begin, curve over and back and stop and come back the other way and come out again. It moves through these two different personalities, these two different frames of mind, and pretty successfully. I think that's apropos as you start the third chapter of your extraordinary career. Tobias Friggins, thank you for being on Today Matters today. Hi, thank you for having me. You can find out more about Tobias Frere Jones and his new type family, Mallory, at frerejones.com. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.